You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. ever heard the phrase, I love you with all of my heart? I know you have. Maybe some of you have even said that phrase. And generally, we say it to someone we have a relationship with, someone we talk to often, somebody we spend time with, somebody we know them, we know their character. We wouldn't walk up to someone we don't know and say, oh, I love you with all of my heart, right? Well, you could, but may not go so well. They may think you're a little crazy. Um, Well, when my husband and I were dating, there were love letters that went back and forth every day. And um, one day, we pulled out those love letters and we're rereading them. And I noticed that he said some of the same things in every letter. One thing he said in every letter was, I love you. And I never got tired of reading it. When a person is in love, they think about that person all the time. They want to spend time with them. They talk about them a lot. So much that sometimes we think, is that all you can talk about? Have you ever done that? When a person is in love, they will enthusiastically tell you all about their lover. In a book I'm reading called Intoxicated with Babylon by Steve Gallagher, he states, When a person is in love, they will enthusiastically tell you all about their lover. The Bible tells us that in the last days, men will be lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, and lovers of self more than lovers of God. Does that sound like the world we're living in right now? Everybody wants to talk about money, they want to talk about what gives them pleasure, and they want to talk about themselves a lot. Did you know that selfie, the word selfie, was the word of the year for Oxford Dictionary in 2013? Because people have gotten so consumed with themselves, taking pictures of themselves. And you know, we can even struggle with this as churchgoers, because there are churchgoers that have a love affair with the world. In the foreword of this book, it says, sadly, the modern day church, especially in the West, has its own mistress, having fallen head over heels in love with the world. The average believer can talk for hours about the things of the world, but then try asking about their relationship with the Lord, and they quickly run out of words. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Many Christians are pursuing an ongoing love affair with the world. Every Sunday, they convey a false image to others that their marriage to Christ is impeccable. Yet, in reality, they derive far more excitement from their interaction with the world. The spirit of this world is a powerful and cunning seductress that few seem able to discern and from whom even fewer seem able to disengage themselves. Imagine what it would be like on your wedding day to hear your spouse say these words, I, so-and-so, take you, so-and-so, to be my lawfully wedded spouse. I promise to remain faithful to you on Sundays only. 
I refuse to forsake all former lovers, choosing rather to cling to them and meet with them throughout the week. Nobody in their right mind would agree to that arrangement, would we? And yet, that's how sometimes we treat our heavenly bridegroom, Christ. The spirit of this world is trying to get us to turn from loving most the one who loves us most. The one who showed his love on a tree. And that's why the picture is what it is. He showed his love on a tree, on that cross. You know, I do not want God's people to be deceived by the spirit of this world. Now, when we say the word world in the Bible, it could mean the world as in the earth. It could mean the people that live on the earth. Or, in the Greek word cosmos, it can mean an ordered existence apart from God. The world, the spirit of the world, an ordered existence apart from God. And that is Satan. Paul calls him the God of this world. Jesus said he was the ruler of this world. John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The spirit of the world thrives whenever man pursues the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Anyone that is dominated by these lusts is considered worldly. 1 John 2 verses 15 to 17 tells us, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Steve Gallagher in this book that I'm reading says, Like a cancer, the spirit of the world is quietly, steadily, and methodically attacking one cell at a time, infiltrating our churches, our families, and our lives, largely supplanting God's value system with a new hybrid. What he's saying is the spirit of this world, Satan, is trying to replace or supersede God's value system with a new mixture. And what is this new mixture? I was listening to a message by Claudette Walker called Guarding the Treasure of His Presence. I would recommend it to any of you. She mentions a prophecy that was given way back in the 1970s. And this is part of what this prophecy says. It says, in the end time, Satan is going to offer to the church a deadly mixture of enough of God to soothe their conscience, but enough of the world to soothe their flesh. It will, however, be a deadly mixture. Let's say that again. In the end time, Satan is going to offer the church, that's us, a deadly mixture of enough of God to soothe their conscience, but enough of the world to soothe their flesh. It will, however, be a deadly mixture. The spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of this world, has been trying to offer a deadly mixture basically since the beginning of time. Even to Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said, oh, come on, you need to know the knowledge of good and evil, and that's going to put you on par with God. The devil's aim is to deceive Christ's followers, causing them to believe that they can live for the world's rewards and still maintain a viable relationship with God. But Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We're either going to serve the lust for what the world offers, or we're going to serve a holy desire to please our God. So as Christians, we even have to ask ourselves these questions. Will the lust of the flesh rule my heart? Will I pursue what gives me pleasure, be it entertainment, amusement, comfort, be it through movies, travel, sports, addictions, etc.? And we have to ask ourselves, will the lust of the eye govern my choices? And that means when you have an intense desire for something you see, whether it's the latest technology, a new car, clothes, or a person, will the lust of the eye govern your choices? And we must ask ourselves, will the lust for position lead me away from the feet of Jesus? Will I be so overcome with ambition, a drive for me to be successful, to for me to have more prominence? The spirit of this world will try to deceive us into believing that we can indulge in the world and all its things and still maintain a love for the Father. So do we say, oh, Lord, I love you with all of my heart, yet we devote our time and our energy to the attractions of this present world, putting God into a secondary and maybe a minor place in our lives? There's absolutely nothing wrong with some of the things I listed unless we want them more than we want to please God. And nowadays we know that amusement is very high on the list. Um, Amusement is the opposite of musing. So people are trying to keep themselves from thinking about the serious things of life. They're, that amusement is trying to, they're trying to numb their minds from thinking about what really matters. Um, there's more, more vacations nowadays. People are going on vacation more than they ever have. There's more uh, grown men with families that have become extreme gamers. Um, did you know that every year since the 1990s, there has been 2,500 new movies produced every year? And sadly, many Christians have allowed these lusts to drive them in pretty much the same way as the unsaved. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And you're probably sitting here thinking, why are you talking to us about this? We are here on a Wednesday night Bible study. We are the faithful ones. Why am I talking to you about it? Because the enemy of our soul, he is a sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is constantly, untiringly, persistently attempting to deceive, to tempt, to influence, and to oppose God's people. The spirit of the world, he will present, present itself as our friend, but is an extremely evil being bent on our destruction. I want us to be aware of how the enemy is trying to influence our decisions, our actions, our activities. And he will tempt us with little things like, but you will enjoy this. Or even, oh, you deserve this. Or so-and-so's doing it, and they still go to church. The spirit of this world wants us to love the world. 
but God wants us to love him. He says that you should love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said this is the first and great commandment, to love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. So in other words, everything a Christian does in life should be motivated by this deep affection we have for God. Can you imagine if everyone on this earth followed that one rule, that they loved God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul? What would this world be like? I've mentioned that the enemy has been trying to seduce the church by offering a deadly mixture of enough of God to soothe their conscience and enough of the world to soothe their flesh, and it is a deadly mixture. And I mentioned how it even started with Eve. But if we go to the time of Noah, uh, Genesis 6 and 5 tells us that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That was the point it had come to. That that's all they thought about was evil. And you know how the Lord destroyed the earth with the flood. And they start over with just Noah's family. And you think, wow, things should be good for a while now, right? It's just Noah's family, the godly ones that were saved. But just a few generations later, Satan has already convinced people that worshiping God is not important. Their value system had changed. It was now based on temporal instead of the eternal. And I'm sure we've all heard the story of the Tower of Babel. Well, the book I'm reading, Intoxicated with Babylon, um, is talking about how Babylon symbolizes the gathering together of those who want to rid themselves of God's presence and authority. A little history lesson here. Noah has a son named Ham. Ham's descendants, um, from Ham's descendants comes a man named Nimrod. And Nimrod, in Genesis 10, says, Nimrod became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, when it says he was before the Lord, it doesn't mean he was standing in front of the Lord. That word means to face. It's a sense of doing something in outright defiance to another person. You've heard the phrase, um, you're in somebody's face. That was Nimrod. He was in the face of God, defying him. He was snubbing God's authority. Historians tell us that Nimrod was an extremely violent man. He was bent on dominating and ruling the lives of others in defiance of what God wanted. He wanted a kingdom of his own where he was the ruler. Up until this time, men had basically lived a nomadic tent. They were nomadic tent dwellers. But Nimrod, he said, let's build a city. He says, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The tower they built was the Tower of Babel. The city was Babylon. He wanted to entice people to himself, but away from the one true God. He told them, if you come to this tower... Uh, if God floods the earth again, we can, we can be on our own. We can be so high that that flood will not reach us. And he also made it a place where people could go and worship whatever God they chose to create. He was just bent on them not serving the one true God. And he was helping the spirit of this world by causing rebellion against the one true God. 
Now, I don't know if any of you have ever heard the phrase, don't be a Nimrod, or you're such a Nimrod. Basically, they're saying you're stupid or you're an idiot. So, um, I don't think any of you have any plans to be a Nimrod, right? Anyone here planning to build a tower to reach heaven? Anyone planning a rebellion against God? I hope not. Well, I think that we could probably compare ourselves to another Bible character a little more than Nimrod. I was thinking, what Bible character really struggled with being tempted to fit into the world? And Lot was who came to mind. So a brief version of Lot's story. Um, His uncle was Abraham, and Abraham is going to depart. God tells him to go from Haran and go to the land of Canaan. And Lot goes with him, his nephew. They both have a lot of animals. They would both have been considered very wealthy in their time. They had flocks and herds and tents, and they were getting a little crowded. And their herdsmen started fighting. So Abraham tells Lot, "Um, I don't want there to be strife among us, so why don't you go one way and I'll go the other. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. So that's what they did. And Lot, he picked the lush, well-watered plains of Jordan, the Bible tells us. Genesis 13 and 12 says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And Sodom was a very wicked city. But he pitched his tent close to Sodom. By Genesis 14, we read that he was living in Sodom. And by chapter 19, it says he was sitting in the gateway of the city. He has become a very important and a very influential man in that city. So God tells Abraham, he said, I am going to destroy Sodom because it's a wicked city and it's grieving my heart. I'm going to destroy it. And Abraham, he does not want his nephew Lot to be destroyed. So he says, oh God, if you can find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God says, yes, they can't find it. He says, how about 45, God? They can't even find that. 40? Can't find 40. 30? God, if there's 20 righteous souls, will you spare the city of Sodom? They can't find 20. They take it down to 10. They can't even find 10 righteous souls in that city. And the angels come to to Sodom, and they try to get Lot and his family out of there before the city is going to be destroyed. Lot goes to his sons-in-law and tells them, God is going to destroy the city. We need to get out of here. And they mock him. They do not believe him. The Bible tells us that Lot lingered. The angel had to take him by the hand and basically drag him out of that wicked city. They were basically told to run for their lives, but yet Lot's wife has to turn around and look back because she loved that city. Lot is struggling. He wants to obey God, but, you know, he kind of liked that place. And I had to wonder, did Lot ever talk about God? Or did he just kind of flow with the ways of Sodom? Because there were no other righteous people. There was Lot and his wife and two daughters that got out. He had two daughters that were married. That's eight people right there. There'd only need two more righteous people. But even his family was not considered righteous. And to me, it sounded like Lot was not promoting God. But he was buying into what Sodom and Gomorrah were promoting. Law had conformed to the way of that wicked 
place called Sodom. He was even willing to sacrifice his two unmarried daughters to the lust of the wicked people of that city. It can be so easy for us to pick up on the trends of the world that we live in and flow with the ways of the world when we need to be following and flowing with God's spirit. Now, Lot believed in God. He even believed that God would and could destroy that city. But it appears that he loved something that grieved God's heart. Actually, the reason Lot is spared is because Abraham interceded to God on his behalf. And if we go ahead in time a little more, the children of Israel, we know the story of how they were in bondage in Egypt, and God delivered them from that bondage. They wandered in the wilderness. They are finally ready to enter their promised land. And the Lord tells Moses, warn the people. Tell them, don't make covenants with the people who still live there. Don't let your sons and your daughters marry people in those nations because they will, t- it will turn their hearts from following me and to serving other gods. For you are a holy people unto the Lord. You are a separated people. You are a set-apart people for the Lord. God calls us, his people, to live a life separated from the world. He says, come out of the world. Peter said it in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all that you do. For it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Another version of it, the New Living Translation says, Obey God because you're his children. Don't slip back into your old ways of doing evil. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God, who chose you to be his children, is holy. For he himself has said, Ye must be holy, for I am holy. Now, I know we have to live in this world. We have to work alongside sinners. We have to shop with unbelievers, um, but yet we have to not let ourselves be attached to Babylon, to the world, to this place that exists apart from God. We have to remain separated or holy from the world while living in the world. And it all starts with being separated unto God in our hearts. Saints, we are called the ones that are set apart for God. The church is the called out ones. Now, in dating, there's a term of someone playing the field, which means they are casually dating multiple people and have absolutely no commitment to any of them. But when we want to please somebody, when we love somebody with all our heart, and we want to spend time with just them, talking to them, listening to them, reading their messages of love, We want to please them, and we say, ha, no more playing the field. I'm committed to this one. We set ourselves apart for that one person. And that's what God wants us to do. No more playing the field. The Corinthian church, they were struggling with this. They were trying to keep their old alliances with the world and at the same time enjoy the benefits of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 we're going to read some of those verses. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? 
Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Maybe you've heard that phrase before, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And I was thinking about, you know, a yoke, for any of you that don't use that term every day, was talking about two animals being attached together to plow the fields. And maybe Paul was thinking about an Old Testament law that said they could not yoke an ox and a donkey. Was it a donkey? Yes, to the same yoke. And why wouldn't they want an ox and a donkey yoked together? Well, basically, an ox would be way up here and a donkey would be way down here. Um, can you imagine? The ox is trying to get low to, on the level with the donkey. The donkey's raising his little head, trying to get his neck up there high enough. Um, they could not work in sync together. It just wouldn't be easy. It would be painful. And so he's telling us, don't try to be yoked together with unbelievers. You're not supposed to have that kind of pain. You are meant to work together with people who are of like faith. Verse 15 says, What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We should not be taking our cues, our advice, or our influence from the world. Hebrews 12 and 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. God says, Be holy, for I am holy. If we think back to 100 years ago, early 1900s, most believers in that time were very careful that their actions were in light to God's word. They possessed a reverence and a fear of God that caused them to take great care over the way they lived their lives. They realized that this righteous God was holy, and in their hearts was a desire and a longing for his holiness. They saw the spirit of the world for what it was, and they wanted absolutely no part of it. When the scripture speaks of holiness for us, it's basically saying that we need to have a level of cons consecration and godliness that grows out of an obedience for God and a submission to God. Now, none of us have reached sinless perfection, but we can reach a place in our lives where we no longer want to be under the control of sin, but we want to love God with all of our heart. And we choose. We choose not to give in to our carnal, natural, fleshly nature. And each time we choose to obey God and to submit to him, we become a little more and more like him. We can't make ourselves holy. God does that. But we must have a longing to be separated from the world and separated unto God. How many would agree that heaven is a holy place and a holy God lives there? So if we're strangers to holiness, how are we going to fit in in heaven? We wouldn't even want to be there, would we? 
So that's why we're training here on earth, trying every day just to be a little more like God. And to do this, we have to empty ourselves of the things of the world so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, so we can grow in our love for God. So do any of you believe me? Do you believe that the spirit of the world is trying to deceive us and trying to influence us? Trying to get us to live a life that doesn't submit to God's authority? I think you all agree with that. So what are we going to do about it? How can we combat this? The first thing we have to do is wake up. Right? And this, that's scriptural, actually. Ephesians 5, 14 says, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most out of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We don't want to be spiritual sleepwalkers, do we? Are there any sleepwalkers in the place? Because sleepwalkers usually go places they didn't really intend to go. They tend to fall. They get hurt, and sometimes they even hurt other people in the process. I do not want to walk through life in a spiritual stupor. I don't want to be a spiritual sleepwalker. I want to know daily what God's will is for my life. And we have to get all of our, our advice and our counsel from godly people. Psalms 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Another version puts it this way, Happy are those who reject the advice of evil men, who do not follow the example of sinners, or join those that have no use for God, Instead, they find joy in obeying the law of the Lord, and they study it day and night. So he's basically saying, read your Bible. Know what God has to say. So the next thing we have to do to combat the spirit of the world that's trying to deceive us and influence us, after we wake up, we need to have a hatred for the spirit of the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We have to love the people in this world, but we have to hate anything that is distracting us from loving God with all of our heart. God is a holy God. He does not fit in with the spirit of this world. Right? God doesn't fit in in this world. So why would we want to fit in here if we want to be like God and we want to please God? The next thing we need is a passion for purity. We have to say, God, cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. We have to cleanse ourselves from wanting and loving and coveting the things of the world. Cleanse ourselves from the attitudes of this world. What kind of attitudes do you see every day at work and wherever you're at, at school? We have to cleanse ourselves from these attitudes that are... The world is very 
uh, slow to forgive. We cannot be like that. The world is full of jealousy. They're vindictive. They're selfish. We are not supposed to fit in with that. We have to make room in our heart for God's spirit. And that leads us to the next thing we can do is be led by God's spirit. The world, they are marching to the beat of the spirit of this world. But we have to walk in tune with the spirit of God. Every person who has the spirit of Christ living in them, they will sense a prodding towards holiness. If we have God's spirit in, in us, he's always going to be prodding us. This is what you have to do to be more like me, to please me. Sadly, after we ignore it for so long, our conscience is seared, the Bible tells us. And I, if we keep doing that thing that he told us not to do over and over, we get so we don't hear God's voice the same anymore. So I'm going to be very real right now. Are you doing something now that you felt the Spirit of God tell you not to do in the past? Maybe you go someplace that you would never have gone to when you first consecrated your life to God. Are you listening to music that you know God does not approve of and it does not promote God? Are you wearing clothes that you shouldn't be wearing? Ladies, are you cutting off the glory that God has given you? Yes, I'm talking about your hair. God gave it to us for a covering, for our glory. Are you using language that you know God wouldn't approve of? Are you struggling with trying to fit in with this world? Are you partaking of that deadly mixture of enough of God to soothe your conscience and enough of the world to soothe your flesh? What spirit is leading you? Where is your influence coming from? We need to be led by God's spirit. Everything we do, we need to get our direction in prayer. And if you're doing something right now that you know you shouldn't be doing, you think about it. Did God tell me I shouldn't do that? Or did I even bother to talk to him about it? Have you fasted about it? When we fast, we're trying to deny our own flesh, trying to die to what we think and what we want and what we believe so that we can be alive to what God thinks and what God wants and what God believes. And we need to study God's word and ask God to reveal to us what we need to do so we can be closer to him, to be more like him, to be holy as he is holy. So those things that you've been doing that you used to feel conviction over, what has changed? What spirit is influencing us? We know God never changes. And we know his spirit can help us. And this is what the Bible tells us about this. This is Bible study, so let's read some Bible here. Romans chapter 8. This is going to be the Living Bible Translation says, so there is now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus for the power of the life-giving spirit, and this power is mine through Christ Jesus, has freed me from the vicious circle of sin and death. 
We aren't saved from sin's grasp just by knowing the commandments of God because we can't and don't keep them. But God put into effect a different plan to save us. He sent his own son in a human body like ours, except that ours is sinful. And he destroyed sin's control over us by giving himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So now we can obey God's laws if, if we follow after the Holy Spirit and no longer obey the old evil nature within us. Those who let themselves be controlled by their lower natures live only to please themselves. But those who follow after the Holy Spirit find themselves doing those things that please God. Following after the Holy Spirit leads to life and peace, but following after the old nature leads to death. Because the old sinful nature within us is against God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their old sinful selves, bent on following their old evil desires, can never please God. But listen to this verse, verse 9. But you are not like that. You are controlled by your new nature if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that anyone that if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ living in them, he is not a Christian at all. Verse 12, So dear brothers, you have no obligation whatever to your old sinful nature to do what it begs you to do. For if you keep on following it, you are lost and will perish. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you crush it and its evil deeds, you shall live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So we have that hope that the Spirit of God in us will help us overcome the spirit of the world that is trying to trick us and destroy us. The next thing we can do is we can make a decision to love the Lord with all of our heart. Jesus said it. We're to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. We have to make up our mind. We have to choose this day who we're going to serve. We have to rid ourselves of the distractions that the spirit of the world is sending our way, trying to tempt us, trying to get us to fit in with the world. And I know, I can, I can feel conviction in this place. I know that the spirit of this world has been tempting many of you, probably all of you, if we're honest. He's saying, oh, just do that. There's nothing wrong with fitting in the world, right? He's trying to get us to get that little mixture that's dangerous. I read a quote. It said, devotion increases when distractions decrease. Devotion increases when distractions decrease. Now, isn't that true in the natural? If you're trying to talk to somebody and they're sitting there texting on their phone or reading something, or just looking around, and you're like, hey, hey, look at me. Devote your attention to me right now. Right? You're like, get rid of those distractions. But it's like that for us serving God, too. For us to be devoted to God, we have to get rid of some distractions. We have to choose. We have to decide that we're going to live a life that is dedicated and devoted to God. And God will help us. And it's all about relationship. As you spend time with the Lord, as you talk to him, you listen to him, you experience his love, you get to know him, 
that's when you can say, I love you with all of my heart. And it will be a love that lasts. The next thing we can do is worship God. In her book called Kingdom Come, Lori Wagner states, No one understands the power of worship like Lucifer. He knows that when people worship, a shift happens in the spirit world. This is the very reason he tempted Jesus to worship him. Worship is a powerful weapon, one that can reverse the current trend of events and pave the way for victory. Worship puts God on the throne of our hearts. As we worship God, the enemy that tries to put us in bondage is bound instead. Do you ever notice how when we start to worship, the atmosphere changes? Doesn't it? God's presence just becomes so evident. I mean, he's already everywhere. He's already here. But when we choose to worship him, we can feel his presence. And the enemy is not going to stick around when God is being praised. If we can just give God the gift of our worship, if we can remind ourselves of God's greatness, his attributes, his work in our life personally, his salvation, how he has saved us, his healing power, his guidance so many times, the miracles that he has performed. If we can remind ourselves of who he is and why we love him, then we will worship him. And when we worship him, we will want to separate ourselves from this world, and we will want to separate ourselves unto him. And that's what holiness is. Yes, it's true that Satan, the spirit of this world, is trying to deceive us into believing that we can indulge in the things of the world and still have a relationship with God. He's trying to get us to replace God's value system with this mixture of just enough of God to soothe our conscience and just enough of the world to soothe our flesh to destroy us. But as God's children... We can and we must be full of the Spirit of God and led by the Spirit of God and love him with all of our hearts. We serve a powerful God. And I ask you at the beginning of this message, tell God one thing that you love about him. And I have a feeling you could think of more than one thing. Right? You couldn't, you couldn't just stop at one. I'm going to have Laurel come and play. I want us to take a few minutes and think about this powerful God that we serve. And I want you to tell him again the things, not just one thing, but the things that you love about him. But I also want you to talk to him about what he's been talking to you about during this message. And I know he has been talking to you. And I want you to ask him for strength to overcome to not let the distractions that the enemy is throwing in your path to, to stop you up from serving God with all of your heart. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.